Uh, my wife and I first met each other properly when we were studying at university in a Latin class, of all things. And, uh, but we like to remind ourselves that, uh, you know, as Latin is the, is the parent language of, you know, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, those are all romance languages. Uh, so it's only fitting that we, you know, met and fell in love while conjugating verbs in the, you know, ultimate romance languages, language of, of Latin. Um, but uh, both of us have a distinct memory of a moment uh, from before we uh, were dating, before we'd even sort of expressed uh, feelings for each other. We were just enjoying each other's company in a Latin class, just talking, having a great time. And our lecturer, who was a, an aristocratic Italian, like um, full on, you know, grandfather's house was built on ancient marbles, that kind of thing. <laughs> not, not like little marbles, but, you know, stone marbles. You know what I'm, getting, you know what I'm saying. He spoke Latin with the most beautiful Italian accent. Uh, and one, uh, during this moment in our uh, lecture, he essentially called us out in front of everyone for flirting. And uh, the whole lecture theater just swung around and looked at us and both of us just went bright red. Um, and I don't think we said a word to each other for the rest of that lesson, uh, trying to recover. But we had the joy of studying together, of marrying while we were at university and even uh, graduating twice together, walk, literally walking across the stage one after the other with the same last name, which was an absolute joy. Uh, but by the time I'd gotten to study English and uh, education, I'd already learned to look at the world through the lenses of uh, theology and uh, history. And so the questions that were important to me are, what is historical fact? And what does it reveal to us about the divine, about uh, our relationship with the divine and about the human soul? And particularly, how is that conveyed through language? And so I invested time into studying ancient languages and particularly the language uh, of the Bible. But in the context of education, I learned how to express information about uh, religion and faith in a way that makes sense to people who don't necessarily have a background in it themselves, and that, and that obviously just does justice to the need for neutrality and, and impartiality in that setting. And this morning's not going to be too different from that. What we've promised you this morning is, is a conversation about faith, not a, a dogmatic experience. That being said, obviously I speak to you this morning from the standpoint of faith. And like many of the people in the room, belief in God is something that I hold to with, with both a firm and a considered uh, conviction. But if your views are entirely opposite to my own, then you are absolutely welcome here. And that is, uh, in fact, the point of this whole conversation. So I don't, I don't presume any permission to speak into your life in the same way I would if, if you were a member of the congregation here. Yeah, I'm, I'm not your pastor. But what I do assume is that if you've come through the doors this morning, that you're not just interested in a free morning tea, but that you're also open to a conversation about faith. And so I assume that I do have your permission to speak with some degree of experience and authority on that matter. So it's wonderful to have you here this morning. I'm so grateful to be able to, to speak to you today on, on these couple of topics. We are asking the question, why God? That's the first one that we're dealing with. And we've actually been out into the community of Brisbane asking ordinary, everyday people like you and me what their thoughts are about questions to do with God, spirituality, that kind of thing. And so uh, why don't you look at the screen for some of those responses? I don't know. Um, you certainly wonder if there's something out there, right? But, you know, there's so many things that sort of show you that, you know, if there is a God and if he is controlling, he allows things to go out of control. And it's, it's sort of confusing. But I think people need something to to rely on some people their their psyche their their makeup is 
you know, they need something. Oh, I used to think there was a man in the sky when I was little. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know, it's kind of hard. Like, I don't know if he's like human, not human, just a, yeah. a thought, like... I I would I would say I don't have any idea of a, of a god. Uh, I don't I don't think one exists. There's oh wow. Uh, I think it's like the power of the universe. A little yeah. I'd say God to me. I guess is sort of like I wouldn't see it as, as a person or a conscious being, more just like. Uh, I mean, it's different for everyone, but probably sort of, I think of more of a higher being that sort of watches over us, I guess. <laughs> I think in some way it's a bit of a comfort. I believe in God because um, I think the world doesn't make sense without a God. Um, a lot of questions that are unanswered. Um, they will still have the same questions, but I think God fits all the answers in a lot better than no God. Oh, well, I think... Well, it explains a lot of things, you know, when people turn to that for, for comfort and to find purpose. Because they need hope. I think um, what helps it is the unknown after death. You know, people like, well, for me, it's, it's scary, you know, to think there's nothing after death. And for me, it just, it's just a bit of comfort knowing that there's a heaven. Um because it's a truth and it's a way that brings life. Because they want to like believe that things happen for a reason, I guess. Like, um, if something really bad happens to you, they're kind of like, oh, why? Like, maybe there's a reason for it, I guess. And also, like, in uncertain times, like war and like COVID, everyone gets a bit scared. So, like, turning to God is pretty like good. It reassures everyone and like it'll be alright. Uh, I'm not very religious, so it's sort of, it's sort of hard for me to understand why people cling to it. I don't I don't necessarily get it. I'd just like to start by defining that question a little bit. What do we mean when we ask that question? We're not talking about the uh, the Bruce Almighty, you know, why God kind of question. Although many of you may have done that at some point in your life. What, neither am I going to try and justify to you the existence of a God based on intellectual argument. You know, does God exist? Because that's a question that's been dealt with so extensively by thinkers over the last couple of millennia that it actually has its own name. It's called an ontological argument, a, a reason, a, a reasoning from, well, an argument from reason alone as to why God exists. There are a number of reasons why I'm not going to do that this morning, uh, but the most important one is that I feel it, it's actually not uh, the most fruitful way to to spend our time or to try and answer that. So the question that we are asking when we say why God is why do people still believe in God? Why in this uh, modern world, this modern Western Australian society where the, the dominant narrative appears to suggest that uh, faith is something that belongs in the Middle Ages, that superstition is something that's abhorrent to the, the rational mind and that scientific discovery has made religion entirely redundant why is it that modern, free-thinking, respectable people continue to find meaning and truth in faith in God? Is it actually for a sense of comfort when things are hard? 
Or is it to have some kind of uh, thing to, to hang a sense of security and, and truth on, to, to make sense of the world? Or is it simply that some people lean that way, that it's a, a part of our makeup or of our psyche that uh, suggests that we will eventually believe in God? If we look through the history of uh, humanity, we'll see that none of those answers are quite sufficient because right from the beginning, all of our archaeological evidence tells us that as long as humans have existed, there has been a, a belief, a, a yearning after something divine. And I'm not necessarily talking about organized religion, but a sense that there is a, a higher power and a higher being than us. You'll find no corner of the world and no chapter of history where faith has been entirely absent. And, you know, we might look at that from our standpoint and we might have something that um, scholars call a chronological bias, which is to say that, you know, well, we're the most advanced, we're the most modern society, and therefore we can dismiss the ideas of a, a mother earth or a sky serpent or, or a heavenly father as simply outdated superstition. But that doesn't make sense of the current reality in Australia at the moment because recent data published in the last couple of years says that 54% of Australians profess religion. And if you were to include to that people who have a sense of the possibility or even the plausibility of the supernatural, of the existence of the divine, then that number goes up into the 60s. So faith is alive and well in this society which seems to suggest otherwise. We also need to dismiss the idea that it's simply based on intelligence because, quite frankly, that doesn't do justice to the, the people uh, who believe in God. So the question remains, whether you are in this category or not, why is it that people in this society, in this day and age, respectable people continue to express belief in God? Well, as a history-leaning person, I want to just uh, take us through the history of belief in the one God. And I'm not talking about just necessarily a belief in the divine or belief in the supernatural, but belief in one God, that is monotheism. Did you know that there are only three religions in the world that believe in monotheism, that believe in one God? They are uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And all three of them trace their origins back to the one event, the one person, and that is uh, the person of Abraham. And so Abraham, if you were to think of the kind of guy who would start a religion, um, Abraham doesn't really fit the bill. He's not a philosopher. He wasn't a, an intellectual. He wasn't some you know, aspiring politician. He wasn't out there to try and make a name for himself or, or to start something. He was just an ordinary guy. He didn't come up with some moral code to live by like Confucius. He didn't come up with some framework through which to understand and explain the suffering in the world like uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the, uh, commonly known as the Buddha. This guy, Abraham, was a normal guy living in Babylon and one day he had a relational encounter with God. And the history of Abraham tells us that God appeared to him and gave him a promise, that he promised him, if you come and go where I will show you, then I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so interestingly, Abraham didn't go around suddenly spruiking his God to everyone. In fact, he didn't try and convert anyone at all. Not even his own brother, Lot. He didn't try and convince him, hey, you need to come and, and follow my God. In fact, throughout the history of Abraham, we see that he didn't come into contact with a single person who knew or believed in the one God as he had been revealed to him, with one exception, uh, a special guy called Melchizedek, and you can, that's, that's a, a, a teaching for another time. 
But Abraham is not the kind of guy you would expect to start a religion. And so the, the people of Israel, which eventually became the Jewish nation, uh, Jew comes from the, the place that they inhabited called Judea, but his descendants grew into that people of Israel through his grandson, uh, Jacob. Now, those people of Israel, we need to understand this, that in the earliest days of that group of people, they were not people who really knew much about the one God at all, other than that he was the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nor did they have any uh, defined way to practically worship and serve and believe in that God. That was until they had a relational experience with him. And so in a minute's time, you're going to see how the the Jewish faith is very similar uh, to apple juice. So the Jewish people we know are people who are defined by the fact that they follow a specific set of rules. They live a lifestyle that is very much uh, strictly set out before them, and that certainly sets them apart as an ancient people, that they were different to uh, the people around them. But if you were to look at their scriptures, their religious text, which is, by the way, not just a religious text, text, it's actually their history as well, and it's a composition of, of poems and, and uh, wisdom and uh, various things uh, throughout the, the nation and the, the timeline of Israel. If we were to try and identify how much of that writing is actually law-giving, is telling them how to live their life and what laws and rules God has laid out, then we would find that of the 39 books in that collection, only four of them give any kind of uh, law-giving. And if we were to be generous in our estimate of the content of those four books, we might say, you know, 50% of them uh, give any kind of like explicit law. So of those 39 books, if we're being generous, only about 5% of it is actually giving of the law. I mean, it's like when you go to buy apple juice and you expect, oh, this is probably like mostly apples. And you look at the ingredients and, well, well, there's only like 5%. The first ingredient is sugar. And the 5% is the apple juice. It's the same. We think that the Jewish people are all about law. But if you look at the contents of their scriptures, they're actually about a collection of the history of how they have been relating to and experiencing God. And so just like Abraham, who first experienced God before he had any set of moral codes or any set of rules or any intellectual argument, so too the history of the people of Israel is one that began with a relational experience of God. And so if we were to fast forward and we get to Jesus, Jesus was born a Jew, but uniquely he claims to be the Messiah, which was proven, demonstrated through the historical claim that he both died on a cross, was crucified, and that he rose from the dead. Now, we need to understand that that, that's the unique historical claim of Christianity, not an ideological worldview, not uh, some fairy tale, not some allegorical story, but historical fact that Jesus was killed on a cross and that three days later he rose from the dead. So Christianity starts then and it grows despite the fact that the surrounding cultures of of Judaism and of uh, the Roman Empire were hostile to Christianity. It it still grew. And then eventually in the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity and then the whole Roman Empire becomes uh, nominally Christian. You have the uh, arrival or the the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which 
then grew into a position of power, and we, we mean real power, not just uh, being popular, but actually having a, a seat of, of government and administration within the Roman Empire that made it a very powerful organisation. And so you had the creation of this institution which represented what a belief in God looked like. If we go back to the earliest parts of belief in God, it was all about relational experience. But now suddenly, historically, there's created this, actually, no, it's an institution. Anyway, fast forward over a lot of history and we arrive in Australia. Now, like many of the, well, like all of the colonial uh, countries, Australia was built with Christianity as part of the fabric of society. And so it was expected and assumed that if you were a part of that country, then you were a, a professing and practicing Christian and that you certainly did have a good understanding of what belief in God looked like. And society was structured that way. If you wanted to get married, uh, you had to go through a religious ceremony. Uh, government officials were sworn in through religious ceremony and religious officials were consulted in many public processes. But over time, that institutional uh, influence and power decreased. And there are lots of uh, different reasons that that, that happens. But uh, to give you a few, one of them is that uh, ideologies began to arise in general society which contradicted or, or set themselves against. They opposed what were seen as kind of fundamental and even a bit backward uh, teaching of the church. It was seen as pitting itself against some of the freedoms that society had uh, found for themselves. And then the other reason, and, and this is certainly the case over uh, the, the latter decades of the 20th century and even the last couple is that there have been lots of uh, disreputable events and scandalous events which have occurred within the institution of religion. And so the, the church and Christianity in a public sense has, based on those things, you know, rightly so, lost its uh, credibility and influence in the world. But we need to understand that right at the beginning of belief in God, it is about a relational experience with him and not about an institution and, and public power. Abraham didn't go about trying to create some you know, public, uh, powerful organisation. It was all about experiencing God in a relational sense. And so where we arrive is that today, everybody fits into one of three categories. And I can you know, say this with a degree of confidence because I've been out there asking everyone and, and everyone fit into one of these three categories. The first one is that they've got little to no experience uh, of God and belief in the one God. And so all that they know about him comes through uh, representations uh, in the media or through a stereotypical portrayal in movies and things like that. And so they base all of their uh, knowledge uh, on about God and about people who believe in God, not based on belief in God or observing true belief in God, but on an institutional representation. The second group of people are those who have a little bit of experience and exposure to God, uh, whether that's through growing up in a, uh, a home where you had a, a grandparent or a parent who took somebody along to church, or whether you, had, uh, you grew up in a religious school. And it might surprise you to know that this was by far sort of the largest category of people that we found when we went asking questions. There were only sort of maybe two out of the dozens who had no real personal experience whatsoever. And you might find that, that probably most of the people here this morning uh, fit into either this middle category or the third one. And the third category is uh, people who have had a personal experience of the living God, which results in them expressing faith in that God 
and of committing to a life that reflects a connection with that God. And so I'm just going to summarize where we've been so far, and then I'm going to give you the answer, well, my answer to this question, why? Why God? So we've said that from the beginning, people who believe in God believe in him because they've had a relational experience, a relational encounter with who God is. And we've said that the vast majority of people in our setting, in our context, don't actually have that. What they have is an exposure to an institutional representation of what belief in God looks like. And so why is God something that respectable, modern, free-thinking people continue to find truth and meaning in? Well, the answer is because they've met him. Because God has revealed himself to them because they've encountered him in a personal and usually in a a group setting uh, such as this. It's like the, the story of the twins who were separated at birth and they grow up each living their lives but with this inner awareness that something is missing. And it's not until they meet later on that they realize what that missing piece was. And not only does it solve that piece but it reveals, it makes sense of the rest of their life. They've met the one person that completes and fulfills that inner yearning. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because simply meeting someone new doesn't guarantee that uh, you're going to strike up a significant relationship with them. And simply uh, meeting God doesn't mean that you should put your faith uh, and trust uh, entirely in him, Because how do you know that that person that you meet is going to be a good person for you? How do you know that God is going to be a good God for you? And so we end up at this question that, that most people ask, which is, is God good? And my suggestion to you would be that if you don't believe God is good, you shouldn't believe in him. That doesn't make sense. To, to trust somebody or believe in, in somebody that you don't actually think is good and has good intentions over you. So we went and asked a bunch of people out in Brisbane this question. Let's have a look at what they said. Uh, if there is a God, then I think he would be a good God. Um, but that's why I, can, I can't imagine all the terrible things that go on there. If he knows every grain of sand and he knows everybody's name, he's he's letting people have a lot of bad. I don't know. I think God is like, yeah, he tries to to give you the path. You have to go. And if you don't get the path, maybe God is a little bit evil as well. Yeah. Yeah, generally. Like, yeah, God is good. Yes. Mostly good, yes. <laughs> yeah, I do think God is good. Uh, I think God would think of himself as good, um, and his actions would be that of virtue. Uh, but that, that uh, sort of idea of good wouldn't necessarily align up with everyone else's idea of, of good. I don't think it's possible for God to be all good and all powerful. Yeah, I don't know. I, but yeah, I think he would consider himself to be good. But whether I consider him to be good, that's not, yeah. Um, 
Well, I guess because I don't necessarily believe God is like a person in that sense. I don't think you can really say it's good or bad. I think it just is. I think for people who believe in him, I think he's good. I think maybe for other people who believe in other religions, they might be on differently. But I think if you believe in him, I think they probably feel as good. So. Yeah, I don't think it just depends on your perspective, I guess. Religious people obviously probably care about um, like, that God is like good now, but I think people just don't really care. Some very interesting responses there. And, and I want to just start once again by defining what this question is that we're answering. Is God good? Because this is once again a question that's been asked so many times across history that it has its own name. It's called a theodicy, which if you were to translate that, it, it means a vindication of God. Essentially, to justify why God is good from you know, purely a, an intellectual argument from reason. And uh, once again, I'm, I'm not going to address it that way. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. But let me connect some dots for you. We've said that belief in God primarily is not about a set of rules to follow. It's not about uh, ascribing to a particular intellectual argument. It's actually about having a personal and relational encounter with God. And so what I want to suggest to you is that the way you answer this question is going to depend entirely on the level of experience that you've had relationally with God. So those people that uh, were answering some of those questions even articulated that. They said, it, you know, it depends on your perspective. Uh, those who believe in God are going to say that he's good, but, you know, others might not. But if we were to take those three categories of people that we talked about just a moment ago, the first category are those who have a very little to no experience with uh, who God is or what God is like or what belief in the one God looks like. They will all arrive at the conclusion that says, uh, you know, I don't believe in a God, but if there were a God, maybe he would think that he's good. Or, you know, I can look at the world and based on my experience, based on my knowledge of how I see things unfolding, well, God can't be good because of that. Or they might just say, well, the, the question is, is redundant. But what I want to suggest to you is that answering the question from that point of view is actually answering from a lack of God, not from a knowledge of God. And if you have no relational experience with who God is and what he's like and, and how he can uh, be in your life, then you're not actually able to answer this question with any degree of authority. In fact, what you are showing is what it's like to not know God. Then this second category of people who have some kind of experience and relationship with God tend to all come to the conclusion that, well, yeah, I think God is mostly good, or yeah, I think God is good, or, or, but I can't quite say definitively. So there's kind of an affection towards religious belief and towards a good God, but they don't know for certain. And then you have this third category of people who express faith in God who all say absolutely, yes, God is good. Without question, God is good. And, you know, it's interesting that as we find all through the, the Bible, the story of the people who know God and who have a relational experience with God, constantly they are professing that God is good. Sometimes when their lives look like a mess, they're not having the best time. They're going through lots of, of difficulties. Lots of tough things are happening. And still they're saying that God is good. 
And so you have that first category of people who look at the world and say, based on my experience, I say God is not good. And then you have this, uh, this third category of people who look at the world and they see the same world and they experience the same suffering. And they, but instead, they've got God in their life and they say, you know what? He is still good. I know that he is still good. So can we really dismiss these answers as simply a matter of perspective? Can we really say that it, it's purely because somebody's bias in believing in God that makes them think that God is good? Or have we got the cart before the horse? Is it in fact that somebody who knows God is the only one who can authoritatively say, actually, I know that he's good? I want you to consider, if you were to create a, a religion, you were to, to create this God and you wanted people to believe in that God, and not only that, but you were to create a text which is to record all of the, the deeds that that God has done and even record some of the words that that God has spoken, at some point you are going to want that text and those words to prove that that God is good. And you're going to want that God to say at some point, by the way, I'm good. You know, you can trust me. It's, it's all good. I find it very interesting that if we look through the whole of the, the Old Testament, the, the Jewish scriptures, nowhere is God recorded as explicitly saying to somebody, by the way, I am good. And yet in, in numerous places, all through the, the Old Testament, we see that people constantly say, God is good. Before, uh, well, while Beck and I were still dating, before we got married, uh, we were still in this phase of, of kind of getting to know each other. But more importantly, we're in the phase of me getting to know her family and her family getting to know me. And we'd arranged this, uh, this dinner where we were going to cook dinner at her house and well, with her brothers. Uh, well, they, they didn't do any of the cooking. They just did the eating. Uh, but we were going to share dinner together at, while her parents went out to, they had some event on. And as her parents were leaving, they said, oh, by the way, we've left some cash on the, the counter for you if you decide that you want to get takeaway instead of cooking. That's very nice. It's a very generous thing. Today. But no, I knew this is a test. They wanted to see whether I was the kind of guy that was going to give in at the first moment to make something easy and, and to go and buy takeaway instead of making dinner. And so at that moment, I resolved in my mind that that was going to be the best chicken stir fry that that family had ever eaten. You see, because I could try and speak to my in-laws and, and to tell them, hey, by the way, I'm trustworthy. I'm a good bloke. But that doesn't mean nearly as much as if they experience that relationally, if they see the evidence through how I behave and how I conduct myself. And the other way that they can have that proven to them is by asking people who know me, by asking people who have had a relational experience with me to say, you know, he is, he is trustworthy. He is uh, a good bloke. And you see, if we are to answer this question at all, is God good? The only credible way to answer it is from an experience of God. It's the only authoritative way to come to any kind of satisfactory conclusion about whether God is good. And there are ways that we can have a, an, a, an experience of God at a distance. Because God has, has revealed himself generally through things. You can look at the, the world and say, you know what, there's some intelligent design going on here. So if there's a, a creator of this world, he's very big and very, very smart. Or you can look at the unfolding of history and, and you can make a judgment based on your own set of uh, you know, assumptions that God is one way uh, or the other. But the problem is that each of those things only reveal a dimension of who God is and not the totality of who he is. Because how can somebody who is so infinite and so large and so great 
reveal himself, communicate who he is to people as finite as us. It would be the same as if you were to try and communicate to an ant what human existence is like. How are you supposed to communicate to this you know, six-legged insect uh, what it's like to have a first sip of coffee in the morning or what it's like to, to fall in love or to read a book or to catch a bus? Right? It, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's absurd. And so how can God reveal himself, an infinite being, to us as finite beings? Well, the first answer is that he has to do it piece by piece. He has to reveal aspects of who he, are, who he is so that we can get a picture. And it's one thing that, that people love to do is to take a story or, or a couple of stories from the Old Testament and then say, you see that God is acting in a way that morally doesn't fit with me. And they say, you know, that's, that's not the kind of God that I want to believe in. Or they say that, you know, God is, is just a, a nasty being. But what that perspective doesn't appreciate is that each of those stories is designed to reveal an aspect of who God is. And you need to take a fuller picture from all of what he's revealed about himself before you can accurately make a judgment about him. Because the truth is, if God wants to communicate to us just how abhorrent wicked deeds are to him, at some point he has to demonstrate what justice looks like. And if God wants to try and get across really what it means for him to be holy, for him to be so large and, and infinite and beyond us and, and what it looks like for a, a person who just constantly wants to rebel against him to be in his presence, at some point that needs to be demonstrated. But if you were to take the, even the Old Testament on whole, as a whole, look at how God has revealed himself, what you'll find is that actually he's a being who's incredibly patient with this nation of people who are just constantly trying to rebel against him. He's a God who's wanting to implement structures and, and things for people who are low and who are oppressed and who have no rights and no freedoms and to give them viable options in life. But you see, the second way that God has chosen to reveal himself is that he actually, he cracked the code. How can we communicate what human existence is like to an ant? Well, God figured out that the best way to do it is to actually become an ant. To, to experience what their life is like. And so God chose to do that through the person of Jesus. He became a man. He invested himself into humanity so that he could experience what life was like from our point of view and so that we could experience what relationship was like with him. And so Jesus is the full and the most balanced expression of the character of God. And if you're going to answer this question, is God good, you cannot take a couple of stories from the Old Testament in isolation. You have to make your judgment on Jesus. Who is Jesus and what is he like? And more than that, it should be based on a relational experience, a relational encounter with God. You know, I haven't uh, really answered this question yet. But I've tried to suggest to you that if you are to answer this question, that it has to come from the, the point of view of experience with God. That if you've not met him, that actually there's no way for you to authoritatively answer this question. And that if you want to answer this question, you need to look at Jesus. Jesus is the, the central figure upon which all uh, belief in the one God will turn. 
And I said before that there are these three religions of Judaism, Islam, and, and Christianity, and where they all, you know, branch out from each other is on who they say Jesus is. So you have to look at Jesus. So I'm going to finish in a moment, and then we're going to see a, a testimony from one of the, the people who attends our church here. But I want to leave you with a passage from Scripture with a Bible verse which kind of summarizes the journey that we've been on this morning. And that is Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and experience him. Come and taste what God is like, who Jesus is, and then you can answer this question. Thank you all for your time this morning. So I'll just start from the very beginning and say I was baptised in the Catholic Church as a baby. Don't have any say and the same as going to church you know, every Sunday. Um, and <laughs> uh, I think I missed one Sunday when I was in my teens and had a defiant moment and flat out refused to get out of the car. And it was, it was a tussle uh, and, and I stayed in the car for the hour because I needed to exert some control over the situation and whether I went or not. So growing up, I always had doubts. I felt like I was being told this was what it was. And as a child, I didn't necessarily um, have the experience of God yet. I am viewing God through a lens of all of the rules. And even as a Catholic teacher, it wasn't so much about the relationship with Jesus or who Jesus was. It was here are the different sacraments that you can go through in the Catholic Church and these here are the rules, you know, it wasn't about the relationship, it was about the rules. So when we moved to Queensland, things were a little bit dire. We we didn't have anywhere to live yet. We were staying with my sister-in-law, uh, but then she sold her house. So there was a very strict date that we had to find somewhere to live. Um, we couldn't get anywhere to live until I had a position. Uh, and we couldn't get the kids into school until we had somewhere to live. So there were these, these things. But the dominoes all fell into place really quickly and so perfectly that I felt this has to be divine intervention. Like so there is a bigger power at play here. Uh, and, and during the process, I had done the whole, I don't know 100% if you're real, but if you are, please help us out because I don't want to be living in a caravan park in the middle of nowhere because we have nowhere else to live. So thankfully those prayers were answered. And it was the first of a few experiences in the years since where it's like this this is God at work. Um, I can't say, I can't believe it's anything but that lens of seeing God as as a loving father, as as um, a father who welcomes without judgment, without without a tally sheet of if you've done these things wrong, you've you've broken these rules or you've done this. I've got that relationship now where I used to feel guilty for, for falling asleep without praying or not reading the Bible or not not doing the right thing. Now it's a oh sorry, you know, um, know that I'll be forgiven and that's all okay it's stronger and stronger conviction um, to the point where I was re-baptised. I, I didn't just want to have baptism be something that happened to me as a baby without my choice. I wanted to commit um, as an adult, as a, as a free-thinking you know, adult who could make that decision for myself. If Jesus were right 
there as a person in front of you. You would be falling over yourself to get to know him. Um, and then to know, actually he wants to know you too. Like that's very surreal, but, but at the same time so real that um, you can feel that with somebody and it can take a little open-mindedness to welcome that message in uh, and it can be difficult to welcome that message in because it's not something you've had before with anyone or anything else but, but when you do it's, it's life-changing um, and yeah, tr truly, 